From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. This is Bloomberg Law. What does a prosecutor have to prove in order to get a RICO conviction? Tell us why the Solicitor General is sometimes referred to as the 10th Justice. Interviews with prominent attorneys and Bloomberg legal experts. That's Jennifer Kay for Bloomberg Law. Joining me is former federal prosecutor Robert Mintz. And analysis of important legal issues, cases, and headlines. Is the toughest hurdle for prosecutors proving Trump's intent? Alito took on Congress, saying Congress has no power to regulate the Supreme Court. Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to a special best of edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Ahead in this hour, the Supreme Court grapples with whether public officials can block citizens on social media. What exactly is a legal hot tub? And Instagram promoters test the limits of a 90 year old securities law. That's what makes these cases hard, is that there are First Amendment interests all over the place. And not only are there First Amendment interests all over the place, as Justice Elena Kagan put it, but the justices' questions seem to be all over the place as well, as they considered whether public officials can block citizens on social media. The two cases involve school board members in San Diego and a city manager in Michigan who blocked followers on social media. Of course, evoking discussion of former President Donald Trump's efforts to block people from his Twitter account. I mean, I I don't think a citizen would be able to really understand the Trump presidency, if you will, uh, without any access to all the things that the president said on that account. It was an important part of how he wielded his authority. And to to cut a citizen off from that is to cut a citizen off from part of the way that government works. The central question is whether the social media activity constitutes state action, making it subject to the First Amendment. And the federal appellate courts in the cases came to opposite conclusions. The justices presented a host of social media scenarios to the lawyers. Here are Justices Sonia Sotomayor and Brett Kavanaugh. So let's assume a mayor says, I'm setting up a hotline for emergencies on my Facebook or Twitter. And if you have an emergency, call that hotline, and I will use the power of my office to set in motion government response for your emergency. Seems to me that that's government action, isn't it? But suppose the city manager on the personal site says, We have new recycling rules. You have to use a blue bin. has to be at the curb. will be picked up on Wednesdays. If you have any questions, contact me. That's only on the personal site, not on the official site. Is that state action? Joining me is Professor Eric Goldman, co-director of the High Tech Law Institute at Santa Clara University Law School. 
Eric, explain the main issue in these cases. The core issue is what should happen when government officials maintain social media accounts? Can they treat it as if they're ordinary citizens, or are they governed by the rules that apply to government generally? And are the issues in the two cases before the court basically the same? They're basically the same. There are little details about exactly how the particular government officials were using their social media accounts that might matter to the final conclusion. But the core questions the court's asking and the legal tests it's likely to adopt are probably going to be the same. So let's talk about the concerns of some of the justices. And Justice Elena Kagan said there are First Amendment interests all over the place. I thought that was a really great line, honestly. Uh, Justice Kagan has just such a great way of turning phrases, and she's absolutely right. There are First Amendment considerations on all sides. It's not like there's an easy path forward that balances all the respective interests. On the one hand, people who work for the government should be free to engage their communities and express themselves publicly as private citizens. That's the constitutionally protected right. They don't give up that right by going to work for the government. On the other hand, when the government controls online discourse spaces where people are talking to each other, there's a really real and significant risk of censorship. And so the concern is that if the government officials can act like private individuals, they can functionally censor conversations. Now, if they're acting as a private individual, they're allowed to do that. But if they're acting as a government, they're not. And so Either we're going to circumscribe the free speech rights of government employees, or we're going to allow government employees to circumvent the free speech rights of the people who want to engage with them. Somebody's going to lose something here. And in these local cases, it's just as important for constituents to hear what their school board members are saying or their town managers and the like. It's not just to be able to hear what the government officials are saying, but also to be able to talk back to them. And even more importantly, in certain circumstances, be able to talk to each other as constituents or as citizens that are responding to the posting of a government official. And so when a government official exercises some of the tools that are provided them via social media to control conversations, what they're really doing is distorting the conversation that citizens might want to have with each other. So I don't know why. To me, it seems like, you know, if you're posting public information on a website, on a Facebook page, that that should be open to the public and the public able to comment. And if you want not to do that, then have a private page as well. So certainly those ideas came out. In fact, there are three different categories of pages that a government official might have. They may have an official government page. They may have a campaign page, which is not part of their official government duties, but still is an important place for them to evangelize the work they're doing. And they may have a personal page that has nothing to do with their role in government. And figuring out which account is in which category is something that is baffling to us as citizens when we see our government officials online. And it's also vexing to the government officials because so often they want to take their victory laps. They want to evangelize their work, to tout their successes. And we aren't sure. Are they touting them as official government policy, as a campaign promise, or just because they're touting their own work as a a private individual? 
And the court didn't know how to approach that issue. They understood the trade-offs, but there was no clear way to move forward that was going to satisfy everybody. So I want to get your reaction to what Justice Amy Coney Barrett said. I think it's very difficult when you have an official who can in some sense define his own authority. So I think for a governor or, you know, President Trump, it's a harder call than someone like a police officer who's a subordinate. Or I could, you know, my locker could just start posting things and say this is the official business of the Barrett Chambers, right? And and that wouldn't be okay. But if, you know, the, that wouldn't be okay. <laughs> <laughs> that comment got a laugh, of course, but what do you think about the content of what she's saying? I mean, the exact example she gave was kind of weird because a clerk wouldn't be likely to be able to set up and speak on behalf of their judge that employs them. So that was a weird example. But the broader principle is 100% correct, that the court is trying to figure out how do they simultaneously govern the top of the political hierarchy, like a president or a governor or even a mayor, someone who's at the top of the organizational pyramid, and all the people who are rank-and-file government employees, some of whom might also be able to speak on behalf of the government, others of whom have no real legitimacy to do so. And the Supreme Court is struggling to figure out how can we come up with one rule that covers all of those different types of job responsibilities and status in the hierarchy. And it's possible that they cannot come up with a single rule that will cover it. They may need multiple rules that will have to be iterated over time. So you think that there's no clear legal test that they could come out with? Honestly, no, there is no clear legal test. And I think we can be a little bit more emphatic that the different considerations include things like what's the employee's job and what tools are available in social media to be able to control conversations and which of those tools was wielded and how does the person describe or characterize their account and how much of the account was used with official related postings versus personal postings. Like we need a multidimensional matrix <laughs> <laughs> try to figure out where to place all the different nodes in those questions. And that's why even with two cases in front of the Supreme Court that they can use to compare and contrast, they still don't have enough cases to cover all the full range of facts that are going to be implicated by their ruling. How about the idea that was floated by Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson of a clear disclaimer indicating that government officials were posting on social media in their personal capacity? Certainly no doubt that legends would help at least us as constituents know what to expect. But the disclaimers could just be another form of a manipulation by the uh, government official. They could say, I'm not speaking officially, but then speak in ways that actually are fully official. Or vice versa. They could say this official government account, but let me highlight some of my personal attributes um, and treat them as if they're a part of the government responsibility. And so the disclaimer doesn't really solve the problems that I think we have, but no doubt that if somebody portrays their account as an official government account without trying to walk it back or qualify that, I think the rule should be that we should hold them to that approach. But if they don't officially represent as part of their government account, it still might be part of their government function. And so the disclaimer is not going to be complete. Coming up, we'll discuss whether there was any consensus on the court. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, 
The promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. You're listening to a special best of edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Joining me is Professor Eric Goldman of Santa Clara University Law School about Supreme Court oral arguments over whether public officials can be sued for restricting access to their social media feeds. It's the first of several social media clashes this term. The first case involves two San Diego area school board members who set up Facebook and Twitter pages during their 2014 campaigns, then continued using the sites to talk about school issues after winning election and taking their seats. They set up their pages so that their posts were open to comment by members of the public. Two of their constituents left frequent comments criticizing the board, and the school board members eventually blocked them. The second case involves a city manager in Michigan who used his Facebook page to post both family and professional information. His posts in 2020 about the COVID-19 pandemic drew a series of critical comments from a follower who he then blocked. Federal appeals courts reached opposite decisions in the cases, and now it's up to the Supreme Court. The Biden administration was backing the government officials' positions. They characterized the Facebook and Twitter feeds as private property. That seemed to me to be a not a great concept here. It's a really awkward conversation because we know that that the social media services have their own rules. They have their own technological options that differ amongst themselves. And they have the ability to intervene with respect to particular items of content, irrespective of whether or not the Constitution would permit the government official to take that action. So they're like the elephant in the room. Everyone knows that the social media services are an integral player in this conversation, but they're not the plaintiff or the defendant. And as a result, they're not actually represented in this litigation. And as a result, the Supreme Court is likely to treat them as this opaque third-party player who is immaterial or inconsequential to the rules. That's actually a good outcome. I really don't want the Supreme Court talking about social media as a private entity or not. I don't want them making hard lines when that's not the question the government has to answer. But it's impossible to ignore the shadow they cast over everything that takes place on their services. The federal appeals courts reached opposite conclusions in the lower court cases? That's correct. The Ninth Circuit held that the government officials, in that case school board members, were acting in their function as uh, government officials when they blocked some constituents from accessing a social media account. In the Sixth Circuit, it was a government employee who had also blocked individuals. The court had held, in that case, that he was acting as a private individual. That was his private account. So 
there were three hours, I believe, of oral arguments. <laughs> Did you see some justices, some blocks of justices sort of coming to some conclusions or did you see any patterns? The short answer is no. Really, I, the oral arguments were quite opaque about where the judges are likely to end up, which is unusual, but one would have hoped that we would have been able to get a clearer line from the oral arguments. Having said that, there are two things that stood out to me. First is that some justices seem to be gravitating around the test that was advocated by the Department of Justice and was endorsed by the lawyers for the government employees about looking at the duties of the government official and their authority to speak on behalf of the government. And so Justice Gorsuch, for example, at one point said, it sounds like we got consensus. That's the right test. Um, I don't know if there was consensus, but it wouldn't surprise me if the test looked something like that. At the end of the oral arguments, Justice Kagan, once again, had a really powerful turn of the phrase. She came and basically blasted the government lawyers, saying that the government lawyers' proposed test was really out of sync with the importance of social media to the government function and would limit the ability of us as constituents in order to be able to defend our own interests when the government keeps embracing social media. So I saw kind of two opposite approaches there. Justice Gorsuch saying, you know, sounds good to me. Let's go with a test that you proposed. And Justice Kagan saying that test is actually really harmful to the future. Was there a split down ideological lines or did this cross ideological lines? I couldn't put together a pattern that represented any kind of ideological or partisan uh, fit. But having said that, I would say that it seemed like some of the, quote, more conservative justices were more inclined to support the government employees' freedom to do what they want, whereas some of the, quote, more liberal justices were more skeptical about how that could lead to censorship. So at times when we've had these oral arguments at the Supreme Court involving you know, the internet, texting, social media, the justices have seemed to be a step behind, maybe more than one step. Did it seem like they fully grasped what was going on in these cases? They really didn't. This was yet another example of how the internet baffles Supreme Court justices. And just to be clear, we don't know how many Supreme Court justices spend time on social media, but it's not like they do it publicly. So they're just not familiar with social media at the same degree that most of us as everyday users are. So it's not surprising that it's a little bit baffling to them that they're not immersed in that as part of their daily functions. But there was a really awkward line that came from Chief Justice Roberts where he talked about social media and described it as the gathering of protons. And it was such a reductionist approach that social media is just about the movement of electronic pulses on the Internet. That's all it is. (laughs) And it's kind of like saying the Supreme Court's opinions are just ink on, on a piece of paper. It's a reductionist conclusion that isn't inherently wrong, but it completely misunderstands the scope and the stakes at issue in this case. And this is the first of several social media clashes that are coming up this term involving the First Amendment and how it applies to social media companies. So just to be clear, there's going to be a steady stream of Internet law cases going to the Supreme Court and likely to be decided by the Supreme Court over the next few years. We've had just this upswell of legislation trying to regulate the Internet, and many of those laws are going to end up before the Supreme Court. So we're just kind of at the beginning of this multi-year 
cycle where the Supreme Court is going to be regularly deciding the future of the Internet. One of the other cases that they've accepted, or there's two companion cases, involve the Texas and Florida social media censorship laws. These are laws that were enacted to basically take government control over the functional operations of social media. Sounds like the kind of thing that we would think would be clearly censorship, mm-hmm. and yet the Florida court said that some of it was struck down, some of it was okay. The Texas appellate court said, uh, it all sounds good to me. And so the future of the Internet is very much at stake in that set of cases as well, because if the Supreme Court says that the government can dictate how social media runs its operations, they are going to be dictating what editorial decisions those services can make. A lot more oral arguments on social media to come. Thanks so much, Eric. That's Eric Goldman, a professor at Santa Clara University School of Law and co-director of the High Tech Law Institute. Coming up next, what exactly is a legal hot tub? Remember, you can always get the latest legal news by listening to our Bloomberg Law podcast and attorneys looking for legal research, whether you're an in-house counsel or in private practice, Bloomberg Law gives you the edge with the latest in AI-powered legal analytics, business insights, and workflow tools. With guidance from our experts, you'll grasp the latest trends in the legal industry, helping you achieve better results. For the practice of law, the business of law, the future of law, visit BloombergLaw.com. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. You're listening to a special best of edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. What exactly is a legal hot tub? It's not as diverting or exciting as it may sound, and it really has nothing to do with hot tubs. It's formally called concurrent expert testimony or a concurrent expert evidence proceeding. And it's more like a discussion among experts. If you haven't heard about it, it's because it's a novelty in U.S. courts. Here to tell us all about it and how it got that name is Dan Paskin, Bloomberg Law Reporter. So tell us exactly what this legal hot tub is, Dan. Yeah, so you can kind of think of it as a debate between experts, often economic experts, but not necessarily, where instead of one sitting on the stand in a trial or in a pretrial hearing and getting examined and then cross-examined by one side's attorneys and then the other, both or all of the witnesses sit together before the judge and are basically prompted to debate each other on a series of predetermined topics or questions. So tell us about this hot tub. It doesn't sound very legal to say even legal hot tub. (laughs) Tell us what federal judge James Donato used it for in San Francisco this summer. So Donato held, this is the second hot tub he's held in this case. 
there's a, a lawsuit alleging Google basically has anti-competitive control over the payment systems in its Play Store, which is like if you have an Android phone, it's where you get your apps. And so the second hot tub was to basically determine whether the plaintiff's experts have reached kind of valid models for figuring out how much consumers were harmed by these Play Store policies um, and what the impact was on the market. Um, pretty central evidence for a trial to figure out whether Google, in fact, you know, overcharged customers and, and by how much if it did. Is the judge the only one asking questions, or are the lawyers asking questions? Is there crosstalk between the experts? There's a lot of crosstalk. It's almost exclusively Donato asking the questions. He allows the attorneys, a couple of attorneys, to sit with the experts in the hot tub, but they're really only allowed to ask questions right at the end if they have kind of clarifying questions for either expert. Otherwise, Donato prompts one side or the other. Um, we'll say like, yeah, I read your report. I had this question about this, you know, one part of the model. And then we'll prompt the other expert to be like, do you disagree with that? If so, why? It got pretty heated several times. There was, I don't know if you would call it yelling, but definitely raised voices. The court reporter had to interrupt, I think, three separate times because two experts and the judge were talking over each other and she you know, couldn't transcribe that in real time. So it, it definitely is a little more chaotic than your average courtroom testimony. Is this because the expert testimony is so complex for the judge to understand, or is it because this is quicker? I mean, what's the real reason behind this? The reason Donato held the hot tub was to answer uh, this Google motion over whether the experts should be allowed to testify or not. And Donato told me in, a, in an interview afterwards that it's very useful for him understanding their testimony and their models. It is really complicated, and that's a big reason why judges are deploying hot tubs, although they haven't deployed too many of them. But it's not just about the complexity. It's, it's also faster, Donato said. It's a lot cleaner. He compared like normal expert testimony, non-hot tub testimony to a game of telephone, right? You've got um, the expert on the stand, you've got their attorney questioning them, and then you've got the judge hearing their answers. So it's kind of filtered through what questions the attorney wants to ask and then how the economist in this case answers those questions. The judge might not necessarily be getting the exact answers they're looking for and instead getting, a, you know, the versions that the economist wants to give in response to the questions the attorney wants to ask. And so by having this hot tub, it's a lot more direct and clear. The judge can ask really complex questions and, and get, you know, exactly what they want out of them. And kind of follow up if the economist dodges the question or doesn't answer satisfactorily. And the economists who typically get hired for these cases, one who's done several of these told me that it's pretty hard for an attorney to cross-examine them, to kind of catch them in errors or obfuscation because this stuff is so complex and because it involves, you know, so many years of study. Really, the only person in the courtroom who could really call them on their mistakes or on, like, lack of clarity is the other economist. So it also means that you have the only other person able to, to make these calls in the room with them and, and able to, uh, to disagree in real time. Do attorneys object to this because it's taking them out of the equation with a very important witness or witnesses? <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, like, these are arguably the, some of the most important players in a trial, especially in antitrust, but also in, I imagine, you know, patent cases and elsewhere. And what they come up with can really determine 
not just whether a company or an individual is liable or not, but also, you know, monetarily how much they have to pay. Um, the attorneys aren't the biggest fans of, of having to step back and basically watch this thing happen. But once I spoke to you also appreciated how useful it was for the judge and, again, how clean the whole thing was. But, yeah, you're right. They they definitely um, lose quite a bit of control. They're, they're relegated to preparing for the hot tub and then, you know, trying to pick up the pieces afterwards. Probably the most helpless they are throughout the, the <laughs> proceedings. So where does that term hot tub come from? Australia, which kind of when you when you learn that makes quite a bit of sense, I feel like. You can you can definitely imagine someone with an Australian accent saying hot tub. <laughs> At least it makes sense to me, right? These originated pretty much the, right around the beginning of the decade. And it was deployed originally by the Australian Competition Tribunal, their kind of antitrust dedicated tort system, basically for this reason, to, to get a clearer understanding of what experts were talking about and make them really drill down on their agreements and their disagreements. Um, it was pretty successful there. They've modified it quite a bit. I don't think it's technically called a hot tub there anymore, but it's effectively the way, it's still run the way that Donato ran it in his courtroom. And it's taken off in a bunch of other countries, in Europe, in South Africa, uh, Canada has used it. It's mostly been uh, unpopular in the U.S. We've only found a little less than two dozen instances of federal judges using one. Um, although I've also heard it's been deployed in arbitration a little bit, but it hasn't, it hasn't taken off. Yeah, and I'm wondering, have there been any appeals based on the fact that this was used? So Donato's case, he, in the Google Play case, used a hot tub for class certification about a year ago. It was last June. And Google appealed the ruling, which he, he found in favor of the class and certified a class of consumers, a pretty large class of consumers that would have put Google on the hook for, for quite a bit of money and hypothetical damages. Google appealed that to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals in California, but before they could actually rule, um, and it was kind of unclear exactly how much the, the hot tub aspect of it would affect the ruling. I'm not sure that would have changed anything. Donato actually changed his mind in part because of evidence that came up at the hot tub that I attended um, and decertified the class, kind of rendering the Ninth Circuit deliberations moot. There's no appeal from his reversal, but in the end, he decertified the class? Yes, and it looks like they probably won't, but no, there hasn't been any other appeals. The Ninth Circuit basically handed the ruling back to Donato when he changed his mind at the end of August. So this was pretty consequential then to make him change his mind. Yeah, so if you read his ruling on the classification, he quotes from the hot tub that I attended at the beginning of August and basically says it, it helped him get a better understanding of the issues. Basically what happened was part of the model that one of the plaintiff's experts used in certifying the class was also relevant for determining damages to that class. And the defendant's expert tried to poke some holes in it uh, at the, the hot tub that I attended, and Donato found those to be kind of a valid attack. And so he didn't just throw out the testimony of that plaintiff's expert for you know the, the merits of the harms, but also for the class itself. I think they have to come up with a new name for this, don't you? The judge held a hot tub just doesn't sound right. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, pitching this story was quite the experience. I got a lot of raised eyebrows from editors, although I, I have been the uh, receiver of a variety of memes created from it, which was pretty nice. But no, attorneys don't love it. I talked to an economist who said 
uh, who strongly believes we need to find another term for it. She mentioned that it, it's kind of weird when you're at a conference and someone walks up to you and it's like, I recognize you from the hot tub. I think people are trying to find another term, but concurrent expert evidence or concurrent expert witness proceeding is not very catchy. Not very catchy at all. Thanks so much, Dan. That's Dan Paskin, Bloomberg Law Reporter. Coming up next on the Bloomberg Law Show, Instagram promoters test the limits of a 90-year-old securities law. This is Bloomberg. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for the Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash futureinvestor slash radio. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. You're listening to a special best of edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Real estate investing made simple. Grant Cardone here in the Cardone Zone every Monday. I said, Steve, what did I pay you last month? Steve was paid $3,120 last month because he invested at CardoneCapital.com. In October, the Supreme Court declined to hear a case involving a lawsuit against real estate management company Cardone Capital and its CEO Grant Cardone for misleading statements in YouTube and Instagram videos. The lawsuit was dismissed on other grounds days after the justices refused the case. But the core issue remains. What does it mean to sell securities in the age of YouTube and Instagram as venture capital firms and others hyping investment projects online are facing lawsuits from disgruntled buyers? Joining me is Ann Lipton, a business law professor at Tulane University. Tell us about the provision in the 33 Securities Act. Okay, so Section 12 is from the 1933 Securities Act, and it basically has two separate provisions. The first is that a purchaser of a security that was sold unregistered when it should have been registered has a right to sue the seller. Um, And then secondly, they can sue anyone who sold it to them or who solicited the purchase if the prospectus or sales documents contained uh, false statements. Now, sometimes there's a bit of a debate about what counts as a prospectus, but what it comes down to is that this is sometimes a more attractive option than, say, more traditional ways of suing for false statements like Section 10B, which is the anti-fraud statute. Because if you sue for false statements in connection with um, essentially these unregistered security sales under Section 12, you don't have to uh, show that you relied on the false statement and you don't have to show that there was any intent to make a false statement. The Supreme Court decided not to take a case involving Cardone Capital. Tell us a little about the issues there. Well, that was a case that was actually, it wasn't a registered offering. I believe it was under Regulation A. So Regulation A is an exemption from full-on registered offerings, but it does require some degree of filing and disclosure with the SEC. So it wasn't an unregistered offering. But because it's not registered offerings, the standard protections available in registered offerings are not available to purchasers. Instead, the only liability available would be, you know, just straight up fraud, which is, again, very hard to prove, or Section 12 liability. That's what's available. And so this real estate company, they use social media 
to advertise the offering that was filed with the SEC. They had documents with the SEC and so forth. And shareholders claimed that these advertisements were solicitations and the Ninth Circuit agreed and repudiated. I mean, you know, some of the case law that had held there must be direct contact hadn't come out of the Ninth Circuit. So at the very least, it was disagreeing with, you know, the other courts that had imposed something like a direct contact requirement. But the Supreme Court denied cert. You know, I mean, there are any number of reasons why they could have denied cert. But one possibility is that the social media cases are new. They're, you know, looking to this old precedent that was generated under IPO situations. And, you know, it may take some time to work through the courts. You know, if you ask an average person, it doesn't seem like it's a difficult question. They're online. They're soliciting. Yeah, they're selling. What makes it so difficult? Well, because the interesting thing is that the word solicit doesn't actually appear in the statute. What the statute says is imposing liability for selling. The Supreme Court's interpretation of selling in Printer versus Dahl, this case from 1988, is the one that imposed this concept of solicitation with this very specific kind of definition. And to be honest, Printer doesn't seem to really understand how security sales work. <laughs> there are parts of it that, that display a kind of lack of understanding. This concept of solicitation and exactly how we're defining it is not in the statute. It comes from the Supreme Court case law. And so now we're all trying to figure out what the Supreme Court meant and how you translate a case in 1988 to today. That's Ann Lipton, a business law professor at Tulane University. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news by listening to our Bloomberg Law podcasts. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. Stay with us. Today's top stories and global business headlines are coming up right now. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.